The LARB Quarterly is proudly printed at Hemlock Printers, a family-owned offset and digital print shop specializing in sustainable and fair business practices. Check out their website at www.hemlock.com. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we have a double Halloween extravaganza. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first, we'll be listening to an interview that I recorded with the poet Dorothy Alasky about her new book of poems, The Shining. Ever heard of it? The movie? No. The novel? <laughs> and then we're going to listen to an interview that you and I did with the filmmaker and now novelist, Anna Biller, about her novel, Bluebeard's Castle. Yeah. Kate, what are your feelings about Halloween? Oh, my God. You had to go there, huh? Well, I actually really like Halloween. First of all, I like horror. Not so far out, more like 80s softcore horror, you know? Uh, Yeah, I I like being scared. I like being grossed out in a way. I feel like horror is a great container, you know, for social commentary, as we've seen with this resurgence, one of perhaps the best akin to sci-fi. And, but separately as a holiday, and also I should say that both these books that we're talking about today deal with male violence. I feel like they're using... I mean, you know, Dorothea's book has a lot more in it too, and so does Anna's, but they both are this great container to address male violence, misogyny. One of the greatest horrors. (laughs) One of the greatest (laughs) horrors. It's up there. Yeah. So I should throw that in there. But back to Halloween, I think that the doors are down. You know, they say that the the separation between the dead and the living Mm -hmm. is uh, less in these months. Do they say that? (laughs) (laughs) They say it more eloquently than I just paraphrased it. But yes, that's the whole point. It's thinner, the membrane between the living and the dead during the harvest season because of the moon. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know why, but it is. And uh, as the light fades and we get all Mm -hmm. towards when everything will die in the winter. Mm. Not in Los Angeles, but in other places. Anyways. Los Angeles is eternal youth. Yeah, or eternally dead, depending on how you <laughs> look at it. Dead. But um, I think that for me, it's it has this festival quality where it's like you can, everything is reversed. The normal rules don't apply. You go up to your neighbor's house. You're not, you know, you're not usually supposed to trespass, but you get to walk. You're not supposed to ask your neighbors for anything, but they give you candy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I love that aspect. And You don't even really, they don't really even have a choice. They have two options. Right. Which is what? Either give you candy or treating. Yeah. (laughs) Or get their house toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I like that uh, communal aspect of it. That's why I like it. But I heard you don't like it. I don't really like it. I'm not a big Halloween fan. I've never really have been. I was as a child because, you know, trick-or-treating was fun. But now that I think about it, even then, trick-or-treating in an apartment building in Queens is not that fun. (laughs) I mean, in the end, you get you get the candy, and that's what's important. But, yeah, and then ever since I stopped doing that, I just, 
I don't like the aesthetics, as we've mentioned before, I think. I don't like orange and black together. I don't think those are two good colors together. I don't particularly like creepy, crawly things. I do like some horror films and totally agree with you in that, like, what a great conduit to the bigger horrors of the world. If we didn't have horror films, how would we envisage, you know, the horrors of pregnancy like Rosemary's Baby or and the horrors of, like, urban planning like in Candyman? So all that is great. But I also think the pressure of like getting a costume is too high. You want a cool costume. I hate topical costumes. Those are corny. So you don't want to do that. So I always went with something kind of like low key. Like I was like a seaweed. But I don't know. It's not my holiday. But as my child grows, I'm sure I will rediscover its joys. I hope you will. I hope you will. Yeah. And it's true. Yes, there are many uh, larger horrors in the world right now, more than Halloween. So I understand, you know, not caring about it so much or not wanting to deal with it, but I hope you give it another shot this year. Yes, and I think that this is, I think this is a pretty fun way to approach it. Get some smart people to talk about their books. Yes, let's do that. And I should also mention that Dorothy Alasky will be in the next issue of the LARB Quarterly Journal. And there's an event that, is coming up that celebrates books and journals. Tell me about it. Yes. So the Other Review of Books is hosting another Lit Lit Fair. It's a celebration of independent publishers from all over LA and the West Coast. It's going to be at Zebulon this year. I think a lot of indie presses will be there, a lot of beautiful books to pick up. And then after the fair, I hear there's going to be a dance party. So, so sounds like a fun time. Oh, wow. And what day is it again? It's on November 12th at Zebulon. If you want more information, you can go to litlit.org. Wow. And are you going to fly out for it, Tara? Absolutely. Yes. I'm going to fly out for (laughs) one night, one gorgeous night of independent presses. Ah, Excellent. Well, I'll see you there. But first, let's listen to these interviews. Let's do it. I'm excited to be speaking with the poet Dorothy Alasky today. Dorothy Alasky is the author of the poetry collections Milk, Rome, Thunderbird, Black Life, and Awe, as well as the book Animal, a series of prose pieces on poetic craft. She has also edited a number of books, including Essay, which examines the essay form, and Open the Door, How to Excite Young People About Poetry. And she's an associate professor of writing at Columbia University. She joins me to speak about her latest poetry collection, The Shining. The book is an ephrastic ode to Stanley Kubrick's classic film based on the novel by Stephen King. The poems in The Shining remix and reimagine the haunted spaces and uncanny elements of King and Kubrick's story in a uniquely personal register and from a feminist perspective. Beyond the recurring violence, they also address identity, the pain and pleasure of the creative process, the terror of time, being stuck indoors, and letting ghosts in to join. Thank you so much, Dorothea, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to be here. So I wanted to start by just talking about how the idea to work with The Shining came to you. And maybe you could 
tell us just like the way, I don't know if you were working more with the novel or the film, but the way kind of either reading or viewing worked itself into the writing process. So The Shining is something that I've been obsessed with for a very long time, and especially the movie, because I did see the movie first. And it was, you know, I saw it like in my early 20s, and it really, really frightened me. I didn't think much of it when I was going to see it. Like I saw it at a midnight show, and I heard it was scary, but I didn't know what to expect. And it really, really bothered me. And I just was really captivated by it, you know, out of my fear, but just like kind of just the obsession with how beautiful it was. And so over the years, I just really fell in love with it. And it turned into from being super scary to kind of just the more times I watched it, almost like a kind of returning home feeling, which I know is maybe (laughs) sad too, but just like being in the constellation (laughs) of characters there and the beauty and the space just felt like very, like very natural and very familiar. And yeah, I've always kind of interwoven, I think, you know, horror imagery, but also The Shining specifically kind of like as a mythology for myself within my poems and other work. It's also something I kind of become obsessed with. So I love to talk to, you know, people about it, but there's not like a lot of Shining fanatics in my life, but it's definitely something to connect to if people are interested in it. And I, you know, a lot of times love to like look up the history of it and things like that just for fun. But um, during the pandemic, I was working on like some prose books on an essay book and a novel, which was supposed to be like a scary novel. And I was not really writing poems that much because I was kind of pushing them away because I was like I need to learn how to write prose and this is not yeah like helpful you like poems just go away basically and I was talking to the editor at Way Books Joshua Beckman who I love you know so much and he said well you should just write a book about The Shining and I was like well if I wrote an essay book about The Shining that could take like the rest of my life I mean that sounds great but like, I am not prepared, <laughs> you know, and I'm not ready really to do that. That's going to take so. And I was like excited by the prospect, but it was kind of like those like lifelong projects or whatever. And he said, well, you, I just meant write poems about it, you know? <laughs> and so once he said that, it gave me license just to start writing poems again. And I just kind of tapped into a kind of root of of the poems and like almost like Sylvia Plath, you know, when she says like the blood jet of poetry, that's what it kind of felt like. It felt like I hit a vein of all those poems that were building up over that period of time that I was pushing away. They all like became the form, you know, in in this shining work. And I've I've always really loved ekphrastic work. Like I love to teach that way. And it's, you know, just writing from visual art so important to me. So it was like kind of fun to do something that I had always made other people do (laughs) and just see how generative it is to kind of draw on imagery that was so familiar and evocative to me. And it was really, really like a wonderful, fun experience writing it. Did you have to rewatch it much or was it already, was the imagery in particular so embedded in you that you're kind of just going through the main startling images of the film and making poems around that? 
it was like there was so much already in my brain. And I realized that there was so much that I kind of imagined, almost like the form that the book has taken in its final form doesn't include a lot of poems that were kind of poems that weren't actually images like in the Shining book or movie or whatever, but that I was just like imagining there were all these hallways <laughs> that, you know, didn't really exist anywhere. And so it's like, I kind of tapped into the imagery that was so important to me and so embedded. And then in that way, I went on little paths that like I couldn't have done without being inspired through that imagery. And when I first started writing it, I was kind of interested in writing like a one for one narrative. Like I wrote like kind of like opening scene and, you know, going through the different scenes. And I did then kind of look, you know, through the scenes and the structure. But then this book isn't really like that. It isn't doesn't follow the linear narrative. To a poetry layman, which I am woman. <laughs> is there a form that maybe I'm not picking up on here? Are you are you using a specific form in any of these poems? Or was that, did you also have a constraint of wanting to use um, specific forms? Or is it just pretty much free verse and that's it? Yes, it's pretty free. <laughs> yeah, I have like so much respect and love for people that are into writing in forms, but I've never been like a really a form person. <laughs> Not that I can't change, hey, next book, but, you know, (laughs) it's not my natural state. The fractic constraint is enough, probably. And in terms of what terrified you when you first saw The Shining or what you feel like it's about? I mean, it is a movie that's endlessly... And I'm sorry to give such short shrift to the book, but I too, um, the referent for me is the movie. It is analyzed endlessly and kind of broken down and its meaning is always being interpreted. There's a whole documentary about what The Shining means. Can you pinpoint for you like what terrified you the most about it when you first saw it? Is it what you think the story is essentially about and how you then kind of wrote? It seems very much like you're writing past the film. I mean, that's the sense I get from these poems that the setting is a real starting point, but that you're writing so much further past it into something way more personal. Yeah. And I think when I first saw it and really thought about the shining in these archetypes, the the main person that I was really affected by was the woman in room 237. And I was most obsessed with her laughter because I just, I'm very terrified, but also like I love and thinking about kind of evil laughter because it just is so, so horrible (laughs) because you like to think that people do bad things almost because they're compelled or they have to or they, you know, but there's like a sense of of like happiness and joy as she's tricked, you know, the Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance in that scene. And I was so terrified by the joy that she was expressing. But that's like over time what hooked me as well, um, because I became to understand why she was so happy in her joy and like how there was a kind of revenge or like a wisdom in it and a wisdom that he couldn't see or maybe, you know, me and as the viewer couldn't see. And so there was so much power in that laughter that I think that just over time has connected me to it so much. But when I was working on this book, I really was so interested in just like the threads of abuse that are there. And I had never 
really, really, I always loved Wendy and she is fantastic, but I never realized how much I emotionally connected to her. And it was almost like she was kind of this like kind of quiet shadow figure, you know, in the corner experiencing and absorbing so much of emotion of, of so many scenes and situations, but not always saying much. And I think during the period of writing it, I came to really connect with that, that figure. And so I like to think of this book as almost like a love poem to that character. Wow. Yeah. Shelley Duvall as Wendy, her face, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, it could be a film in itself, just watching her reactions. And her face is already, like, the proportion of it. She's mostly eyes. You know, that her eyes are such a huge feature on her face that she was almost made for a horror film. But it's interesting that you say this woman from 237 is what first kind of horrified you, because I, I did think that, you know, as much as The Shining seems like about a lineage of male violence, you know, that there was someone before Jack Torrance, another innkeeper who killed his family, and then he will succeed to kill his family. And then in the end, there's a picture of him, someone, a man who looks like him, who has always been there. You know, the sense of like, there is just a wheel going round of men hurting people. I also felt like there's a lot of focus on the self here. And this kind of almost like a horror of the self as not being containable, not being known, the self is splitting, like going into oblivion. No one knows who this person is. I mean, there's kind of this recurrent of like people not knowing your name in the book. And that seems almost more related to the room 237 of this woman aging, like that that woman is both the young woman and then in a split second, she's the old woman. I mean, that she's both things at once and there's horror in that. Yeah. And I think that time itself is kind of is a horror because we rightfully so should take all the time we need to process things and grow and like discover things. And as our creativity grows and takes time and, you know, you shouldn't ever shorten it. And I think a lot about how in society, you know, time is so much about controlling people. You know, if I can make you, you know, go somewhere at 4 p.m., then I kind of have control over your life because you, your imagination can go places. But if you have to do this thing that I'm making you do, you know, then I really like controlling you and how much time can be taken from people just by making them do things in a certain amount of time, even if it's like, if I'm making you do a report in an hour and you really need three hours, I'm also like crushing your spirit and crushing, you know, all these processes that are really important that you should be able to have three hours or whatever. And so it's like, there's something, you have the horror of time and just how quick it is actually, and how quick lives are. And just like how things pass by so swiftly and you really don't always have time to process it. I saw something like online where I don't remember, sorry not to cite it correctly, but it was like a grandma on one side, you know, and then her granddaughter. And it was, you know, just like a split thing, you know, did on the computer and they looked a lot alike. But of course they were separated by like 50, 60 years or what, you know, whatever it is. And it was really beautiful image, but it was kind of, it didn't scare me, but it was kind of, some might think of it as like how fast time passes and how there's like, that is really scary, you know, and 
I think that's also when we think of like the self as like a fixed thing. Time is so terrifying because we think, if, you know, all we have is like this one life to get it right or <laughs> whatever, that that's really terrifying. But there's something like in The Shining in terms of generations that may be hopeful that, you know, there are different ways to get it right over time. Well, Danny is the one who won't be, you have a sense that he won't be pulled into this lineage because he has prescience like he can see. He sees the past. He sees the future. He sees it all. So he's a little bit different than these men who are just trapped in the cycle without knowing it in the maze and they can't see the maze you know, for itself. Yes, it's true. And there is like some hope. I feel like we're meant to feel that he is psychic and that he does get out. You know, he does get out of the hotel. He isn't necessarily within this narrative. I know in the sequel, you know, he does have to come back, but like, sorry to give that away. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's called Dr. Sleep. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, anyway, never mind. Never mind. I'm the queen of spoiler alerts. And like, I don't always remember the actual plot to spoil. So I probably spoiled it in the bad and the worst way. But just in what we're thinking of, yeah, like he does get away. He isn't trapped, even though they're trying so hard to trap him there. It's like he does actually leave, hopefully, you know, and like have life. We hope, you know, without this like abusive father. But yeah, so there's something where it does provide like a glimmer of hope that maybe isn't always present in real life. I was going to ask you about time as being a horrific force. And there is a line, I think, like the calendar is a predator or I'm butchering it, but you know, something like that. And it's also for women. I wondered because I also think The Shining has been reclaimed by many women because of this cavalcade of blood that flows and the image of blood as very important to menstruation, to childbirth, you know, as being a very symbolic image for women. I mean, have you ever thought about it like that? Like the calendar is predator. The calendar is also really an, an important monthly reality for women. Yeah. And that, that it's only, I think that's true. Like it's when we think about people as having this like fixed amount of time, then it becomes like a predator. But I think there is something of the cycles that gives a kind of comfort to that side of it. (laughs) Just that it's not just this one thing where things can be cut off, that the cycle keeps returning over and over again. And I think a lot about that with the blood in the movie and how it is, you know, the horror of it that so much blood has been spilled and it's so you know, it's this terror of violence. But um, in this other book I wrote, which is kind of like about mother stuff called Milk, I started the book with an image of the elevators as like kind of like labor or, you know, like kind of the blood kind of coming out uncontrollably or menstruation or just, you know, kind of like a fluid reality as well. So I think there is something of that where there is like a power in the kind of archetype of the hotel that has knowledge of cycles. And there's something in the laughter, you know, in room 237, which I think connects with that a little bit. And around this kind of recurring thing of, I mean, the mirror is a 
image in the film and where Red Rum, you know, spelled backwards his murder. I just watched the clip this morning. <laughs> but also, you know, the seeing oneself in the mirror, that sister in the mirror is what you say in the in one of the poems. And this kind of, I do think that a recurring thing is one's name not being known. I think there are like maybe two or three or even more poems where you say like, you know, it was spring and still my name wasn't known or they didn't know my name, but it's, how could they forget? Like something like that. It just recurs so much. I, I wondered what, you know, as much as you can say what you were getting at there, or what is, what's behind that? Well, I always think of mirrors like as this kind of terrifying thing, just because they do kind of throughout history present this maybe alternate reality or like seeing the self, but in this other form and that they provide like this portal kind of energy where, you know, you think you're just staring at the self, but really something else comes within the self and they kind of make you mirrors, make you question just reality in general. And like if the self exists and if our perception of reality is at all real, you know, because the, even just the fact that they flip, you know, everything and the way they flip red rum or flip your image if you're looking at the mirror. And, and so I think there's something of like thinking about the isolation in like a lot of the, you know, imagery in the narrative. And I wrote the book like during peak COVID times and, and just that isolation and just kind of this idea of like dealing with the self and really having to deal with the self without many distractions and how that can provide transformation and, you know, entering a portal and seeing the self anew, but it can also provide all that distortion. You know, the more you look at the self, the more there is like no self, you know, like it's harder, like the way we establish what the self is a lot of times is these external factors. And so when they're gone and you look in the mirror, you might start to think about what constitutes the self and you might have a hard time finding those things without, you know, on Tuesdays I go to this class or, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> these external things that make you feel like you have a self in, in public, the public domain or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did notice again that in many of the poems, there's a sense of being stuck, stuck inside, you know, and it goes perfectly along with the film where they're stuck inside the overlook. But then it would also make sense if you're writing during COVID that, Maybe there was a realistic element of being stuck in. I thought there was an interesting line because you write, in one part you write about writing as a way out. And it's a different kind of configuration than I often picture, which is I always think of writing as a way into something. But writing as a way out seems like a different viewpoint. And also, especially in horror, and also a lot of the poems are about inviting people in, inviting everyone in to the house, you know, and it's, I don't know if it's about just kind of like a metaphor for the writing process, as opposed to like you going out into something, you're just letting everything in. I want to talk about that too. I've always thought of like the persona of a poem as like 
I've always loved a strong eye in a poem. And unfortunately, like I probably force other people I teach to think about that way too, but I love an eye. But to me, the eye has no ego and is something that is inviting all the time everything, everything around it, whether it be voices, like it's not like a centered eye or a fixed eye. And so I think there's something in thinking about the book and thinking about the poems and just especially this idea, this image of a hotel and how to me, like I'm really fascinated between the difference between hotel and home because, you know, a hotel, as much as it can feel like a home, There's always something empty in it, but of course a home can be empty too, but there's always something where you are just passing through and you have to kind of think of the next person. Whereas like in your home, ostensibly not if you have children, but you know, you can leave the cup there and you're probably pretty sure it's going to be there in an hour or whatever. I mean, I can't, but you know, like that's what one would hope in a home, but like in a hotel, you can't ever really, the whole guise is that you can't really ever keep anything completely free of acknowledging everyone else in the system of the hotel or whatever. And so I think it's like, um, yeah, for me, it's kind of like the poems are kind of an exploration of the eye as egoless and almost like a hotel. Like the eye is this thing that's passing through that other people, you know, will inhabit the rooms of the eye in the future which I think is how poetry functions. I think like the poet, you know, channels this persona and they feel very close to it, but in the best ways they leave it behind so people can enter it in the future. Yeah, I noticed one of your collections is that you edited is called Open the Door. So I think there's a, clearly a, a connection there. You know, your I love your writing and I have for so long because of that I and because of just feeling like there's a very strong persona. It's not confessional. It feels very personal, but I wouldn't think of it as confessional writing because the I doesn't seem to me exactly like you at all. You know, it seems like something bigger than one person in a sense. And it has, there's a confidence that I think is almost supernatural to the way you write. And I was going to ask, yeah, like, do you think of yourself or that I almost as a medium? A long time ago, I took like a really brief workshop with you at the Night Gallery in Los Angeles, where you talked about using ghosts in your writing. So clearly you've been attracted to this for a while. I know it's so hard to like really conceive of exactly what language to use, because it is when you say ghost and medium, then people either don't take it seriously or, I mean, I know we do, but you know, like, (laughs) or they get scared or something like that. But ever since I started writing as, you know, a little girl, like there was some part of it where I didn't exactly understand, you know, where the language was coming from. And I think, again, it is that blood jet. It's almost like it is this process of language flow and it's not easy to pinpoint where it started. It's not easy, like, to really analyze and control where that one source of inspiration is. And so I do kind of think, I mean, I think of the creative process, like there is the spiritual lens to think of how it starts that possibly all creative people are channeling past selves or ancestors, or I sometimes I like to think about like a future self, you know, like a self that maybe is passed on that is now giving language or information or 
some kind of psychic ability or whatever that's passing through the writer or the poet or the artist. But also I kind of feel like there's like a mediumness to the way creativity works and that creativity has a power that's like kind of elliptical that is not linear and that is possibly kind of a few steps ahead of us and that we can't really conceive of that because we don't understand time, for example, and we can't fully with our brains yet understand how the universe works and how these processes work. So I think probably at some point, maybe it's like, we'll be scientifically proven that the creative process is kind of working on it, you know, in a different time scale. And so it's giving us language or imagery that we can't fully pinpoint exactly where it's from, but it is still part of a cognitive process or, you know, something that when we map out the brain, we can see how that happened or something. And I also think that also in preparation this morning, I was watching this video, like, what is The Shining about? And it was saying that Kubrick thought that it was that the supernatural was a way to kind of cut across time much quicker than a realist depiction that if we were just watching Jack like slowly break down on his own because of external circumstances and there was no supernatural quality, it would take a lot longer. But the supernatural is just like a shortcut to all that. And that's why he decided to employ it so much in the movie. And that made a lot of sense to me that, and I feel like that's something that your poems do so well is, and that poetry really does have the power to do as opposed to maybe a longer narrative where you have to work everything out because it it can say like, we're here, now we're here, now it's 10 years later, like, and it can all be within the span of a few lines. And it does have this kind of like sorcery ability that um, more conventional prose just doesn't. It's harder to make those leaps in story than it is in, in poetry. Yeah. And, and trying to like write prose and thinking about, yeah, how prose writers like do all of this like really magical work that they do is such a amazing thing to try to like understand from a poetry perspective. Cause in a poem, you know, you can make the koala just show up, you know, and of course, like you could do that, I guess, in prose, but people might have a lot of questions. Like they would want you maybe to really explain because they want to understand, and even if it's not like a based in reality, they still just want to understand where the how the koala get in there, you know, I mean, <laughs> and it, but yet it can just be a line and then you can just move on. So it is like this almost like shorthand of reality that can move through time, like in the supernatural way. That's what I love about just poetry in general. Yeah, it occurs to me now that the bear, like when I was younger, I had a friend who was obsessed with the bear in The Shining. And he, I think that was like his Halloween costume. And it's just one, as I remember, it's just like one insert shot really quick of Jack Nicholson and the bear, you know, and then it goes away. But that that's like the koala in a way, like it's so crazy. It's so striking, but there's no explanation of it. And then it's gone. Yeah. And it's like kind of like a dream. And that's where I think like poems have their power. And like, you know, that the movie has its power, too, is that I remember, you know, watching it and talking to my friend about how scared I was. And she was like, but what about that person in the bear costume? You know, like, that's actually the scariest part because it just moves so quickly. And was that actually a bear? You know what I mean? Because it, when you like look at the image, it's actually terrifying because it is something like when if it happened in a dream, you would just kind of move 
broke through as if that was reality. But then when you really think about it, you're like, whoa, that's that's kind of not like something I've seen before. It's like just perfectly different than, you know, what you might see in the forest or whatever. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, beyond the film and beyond this collection, if there are lots of things that scare you, terrify you, disgust you, that you're kind of like waiting to write about or that you haven't touched on or that you feel like maybe aren't. Because as much as this collection is about a horror film or written into a horror film, I wouldn't say that it's, it's more uplifting maybe than, for, or uplifting is a cheesy word, but there is a sense of expansiveness to it. But is, are there things that are like too, that you don't feel like you could write through in the same way? Well, it's interesting. Cause like, yeah, when I, before I started writing this book and I kind of just finished it, but I'm, you know, who knows if it's totally finished, but I've been writing about a scary woman <laughs> And she does, you know, terrible things that, and it's my hope that it's kind of like a horror story, but she does things that like I wouldn't do, obviously. (laughs) But like, it's like kind of putting myself in that position, you know, in that place as the writer of it has been like so fascinating and kind of like addictive in a way. (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) like kind of like intoxicating to like think through the psychology of you know, of someone that I wouldn't necessarily want to know or be friends with or something. So it's like, it, to me, it's like so important to provide space for the scary in writing and art and everything. And I'm really like, I feel like I really want to pursue it like a lot, much past this book. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, this is like kind of like my yeah welcome <laughs> welcome curtain into what I hope is like the next (laughs) part of my writing. Well, that is wonderful. And we'll really look forward to that. Thank you, Dorothea, so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dorothea Lasky. Her new book is called The Shining. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Dorothea Lasky, author of The Shining. We now turn to our conversation with Anna Biller, author of Bluebeard's Castle. We're happy to have filmmaker and writer Anna Biller with us today. Biller is the director of two films, Viva and also The Love Witch, which Biller also wrote, edited, produced, and scored, and which became a beloved cult and critical hit. Biller just published her first book, Blue Beard's Castle, a traditional romance and horror novel, which pays homage to the genre while turning it inside out. The book follows a romance writer named Judith who falls in love with a man named Gavin. Gavin seems too good to be true. He's aristocratic, rich, handsome, and cultured. And this is, of course, all very erotic and very misleading. The relationship is both enthralling and, as we quickly begin to see, extremely violent and abusive. Will Judith come out of this relationship alive? As the famous quote goes, the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. And we're here to discuss that with Anna Biller. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So I wanted to start with where you started for this book. I know it was originally supposed to be a film. Yeah. 
But was it inspired by other romance novels that you had read or did you work up to it by kind of reading the genre or did you not even have to because it's just so inscribed in culture that you already knew these stories without having to kind of dip into romances of the past? Well, you know, the screenplay was inspired by films, not by books, by the classic Hollywood women's pictures like Gaslight and Rebecca and Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Hunter and all of these films where there's a woman in peril and she's got a dangerous husband and he may or may not be the love of her life or he may just be like a complete nightmare, you know, stalker, predator, and she's not sure. And um, there were so many of these films that I love from classic Hollywood and I was modeling my film on those. And then when I decided to write it as a novel, then suddenly it was like, oh, actually, this is really a literary conceit, actually more than it is a cinematic conceit. And so then I got really excited because I did know a lot of those those literary references and I'd grown up with them, all the Gothic novels and all the fairy tales and everything. So it was so natural to write it as a novel, much more than as a screenplay. That was very interesting. Can you talk about the difference in terms of how you wrote or, you know, I mean, clearly there are different forms, but what unlocked for you when it became a novel? Well, a screenplay is so limited in terms of what you can put in. You know, all the screenwriting manuals say to keep scenes as short as possible. The dialogue has to be as short as possible. You have to cut in in the middle of a scene, cut out before the end, you know. (laughs) And, you know, things like voiceover or exposition are very much frowned upon. And um, it's not very natural for me to write like that because I have to write so much more than I put in. And here I just got to put everything in. And it was so much fun because I had like so many notes on the characters, just like hundreds of pages of notes on like why they're doing what they're doing. And then what you get in, a, in the screenplay is just the symptoms of what's happening. You don't get the full story. So I just got to put the full story down. It felt very liberating. I'd love to hear about the kinds of stories, because this book is full of references. It's full of references to films, to other books. You sort of turn, even on the first page, you're like, oh, here's Du Maurier, here's Rebecca. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you grew up on. What did you sort of inhale as a as a kid or as a young adult? And what sort of shaped your, both your, maybe your literary life and your film life? Well, I grew up almost exclusively watching classic movies. And when my parents or my sister would turn on new movies or television, I would leave the room. I was a weird kid. I only liked the old things. <laughs> I only liked old things. I just love, I love the glamour of classic movies. And I love the female characters. And I love the elegance. And I love the fact that nothing was really dirty or ugly in a way that was really upsetting. Cause you know, they were taking us to see all these movies that were inappropriate for children. My parents who were kind of bohemians. So I didn't want to see all that stuff. But then, you know, I started reading really young and I was a very avid reader. I was a bookworm. I didn't have any friends until I was about 12 or 13. <laughs> I was just reading all the time. I spent my weekends in the library and I loved to read things that were too difficult for me. So I was reading Vanity Fair at 11. And that was about the age when I discovered Shakespeare. I just was reading just a lot of the classics as much as I could read when I was a kid. I just loved the classics. So I think this is perfect for me. (laughs) Judith is a writer of romances in the book, and we get the sense that maybe her 
digestion of the genre and the stories of classic, both the classic tales and also the ones that she writes are coloring her perception of the world. That maybe the way she is almost living in story is making her not see things very clearly. I mean, in a way that was almost my experience, just the sense of just living completely in in a world of of classic movies and books and not having any real life experience. And then when you grow up, you get to be like a teenager and boys start to be interested in you. And then, you know, you have no idea because you've been blocked in this bubble of like, you know, romance is going to be like a Bronte novel. It's going to be, or it's going to be like a classic movie. You're going to be treated like a goddess or like, you know, in the age of innocence or something, you're going to be treated... (laughs) It's all going to be elegant or it's going to be, you know, cocktails with Noel Coward or it's going to be, I don't know, like whatever my fantasies were, that's, that was the the reality was incredibly brutal for me when I was growing up and other people, like how they are, you know, how they behave and how they, especially how they, how men treat women and what they want. And I mean, it's incredibly brutal for me. I just like, it was just incredibly brutal growing up for me. I'm a bit making fun of myself by writing a character like this who's so who's so incredibly naive. It's also a little bit like Madame Bovary, isn't it? Like how she's she gets those ideas about romance from reading, which puts her in that very dangerous love affair. Or gives her ideas of what life is going to be like that are unrealistic. Or, or even like Don Quixote, right? Like he's reading, like people get these like fantasies about themselves from reading. Right, yeah. And a part of that, fantasy, and it feels like a real central part of this book, is constructing images of other people and then a new image for oneself, where she sort of remade a new... She also has these ref, like visual references that she's kind of... That both she and Gavin are kind of building off of. But in the context also of your film, The Love Witch, I wonder how you think about that construction of self-image because that is very that's also you know something that really partly that really happens when you're when you're younger you're sort of growing up you're figuring out what do I look like to everybody else what do I look like to myself what do I want to look like how do you approach this construction of image maybe both for yourself and your work because it feels so central to both I just feel like constructing oneself as a woman, as a kind of a drag, is something that I've done. And that that is how I develop my identity to protect myself from being objectified as a woman. So I feel like it's like if you're doing it to yourself, then it's not being done to you. And it's a form of power, empowerment. And so I feel like a lot of women who do a lot of fancy dress and makeup, they feel really good about it because they feel like they're choosing Cause you know, like I remember just being like 17 and I'd be wearing no makeup and jeans and a t-shirt. It wasn't like the men would like suddenly stop looking at you or grabbing at you. They, you know, it's just a young woman, you know, it's like, they're not, <laughs> they're not fooled. You know, they're <laughs> when I cut off all my hair, I spent a year trying to be a man. I thought it would be like dressed in men's clothes, like really quick, really dikey. And then I thought like, nobody would, nothing changed at all. Like not one iota. And nobody's fooled and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're going to do it anyway. So why don't you just look how you want to look? And I've been, you know, I grew up watching classic movies. So my idea of how to look was like, I want to look like Eva Gardner. I want to look like, you know, <laughs> I want to look like Rita Hayworth. And that's what I want to look like. And who cares what other people think? It's my fantasy. 
Did you feel like you were trying to hide when you were sort of dressing, when you would cut your hair, you were dressing as a man? No, no, I was, it was another fantasy. It was like fantasy, like a, a beautiful androgynous young man like Dorian Gray. You know, it was just another fantasy. I had a girlfriend who was very tall and thin and elegant and she dressed like a man and she was so dapper. She dressed like a 1930s man. And I just thought she was so fabulous. I was really just copying her, you know, how kids do. I just wanted to be like, just like her and be just sort of like a gentleman in school, you know, but not one single a boy that was pursuing me, like, was put off at all by that. They just thought it was interesting, you know? Sounds sexy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of sexy. But then I grew my hair out and I started wearing like these 50s, like super revealing dresses. And then I thought, I I like this more for my, this image is more fun for me. I like it better. So I started doing that. I feel like something that the book touches on and we're getting into it a little bit here. And it's a question that I am always grappling with is like, how do you know as a person, you know, beyond being a woman or a man, what you truly desire when images of what you should desire and what you should look like are everywhere? I mean, there's, of course, there's a, there's an amazing range, but these kind of more standard issue tropes of feminine and masculine are the ones that are most accessible. So when women wear a lot of makeup or, you know, do plastic surgery, you know, it's like there's a sense of empowerment to do whatever you want, but then there's also the feeling of you are just playing into what you're supposed to look like. And here with Judith, I think there's a the similar question of the woman she is supposed to be as opposed to the one she is and the way Gavin treats her makes her feel like this image of a woman, but she also likes it. Or when he's rough with her, you know, it scares her, but it also turns her on. And where does she find herself in all of that? Yeah, it's hard to say because it really depends on how well you know yourself and how influenced you are by outside things. But I would say that there's just as much scolding in the culture of women who are all done up and glamorous as there's just as much scolding of that as there is of women who are plainer. And there's there's a lot of scolding of women who don't wear makeup and dress up and wear like a dress. <laughs> there's a lot of scolding of any type of woman that you could possibly be. There's a lot of like censure and judgment and anger and rage and humiliation and fear surrounding any possible image you could possibly have, right? So, okay. <laughs> So, you know, this is the thing, because I remember like when I was younger, I remember it was like not as normal, like as young women now who do the, the heavy glam. That was very rare. Women were not doing that because they were just they didn't want to be seen as non-serious. They didn't want to be put themselves out there to look, you know, cheap or, or vulgar or something like that. And But nobody thinks it anymore. So, you know, I don't know, because I remember when it was more like it was more avant-garde to do that, to do the makeup and everything. And now it's not. Now it's mainstream. So I don't know. It really depends. But, you know, the sex thing, that's another thing, because I think like there is a lot of pressure to be sexually really wild right now. And who knows where those boundaries are? That's a personal thing. Right. I don't know how to speak to that, really, because everybody's sexuality is different. And again, it really just depends on how well you know yourself and what you're comfortable with. But I do think a lot of people are pushed like when you're in love, it's very easy to push someone who's in love into situations they're not comfortable with because they want to 
they want the other person to continue to value them and they don't want to reject. They want to keep accepting everything about the other person. And I was just thinking about this earlier. I was thinking about, I wonder if women are programmed to accept bad behavior because otherwise we would just like throw away our children. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? We have it built in. Like someone just misbehaves, misbehaves, misbehaves every single day. We're like, I'm great at handling that. I'm so good at that. I can fix this child. And then you transfer that onto your man. I just had that theory, like in the elevator today. <laughs> You're going to make your child into like the perfect grown up. And then you, you do that with man, maybe. Well, I mean, Judith is very virtuous in that every feeling that she has, you know, that's possibly not so attractive, she's able to stifle. Or when she gets mad at Gavin, she's able to kind of talk herself out of it in the beginning, at least. Well, I think that is female socialization for sure. You know, the idea that you always have to be nice, you always have to be pleasant, you always have to cater to the other person, you always have to give in to the other person's needs before your own needs. And I think that's really quite unhealthy, <laughs> but that's really hard to get out of. I guess you're asking about that earlier in terms of like self-image, but I think, I don't think that stuff is very important in terms of self-image because that's just an image. That's just what you look like. I think what it's really important is in terms of, what you allow other people, how you allow them to push your boundaries is where female socialization is important. Because the show is airing around Halloween <laughs> and also because I've always been fascinated by this, the Bluebeard story, could you talk about what you think it means for people who might not be aware? Well, Bluebeard is, is a fairy tale, a folk tale about a man who has you know a bunch of wives in a closet, they're all dead, and he's killed them all. And his newest wife, you know, he has a secret. He doesn't allow her to open the door to a certain room. There's a key, and he gives her the key, but she's not allowed to use the key. And then when she does open it, then he threatens to kill her as well. That was the secret. So for me, Bluebird is about a man who kills women. That's what it's about. You know, in the Charles Perrault version, He's got two morals, and neither of them is about killing women. One of them is about women shouldn't stick their noses in where they're not wanted, and the other is about husbands today are not like that anymore. It's actually wives who rule their husbands nowadays. It's like late 17th century saying this. And um, he's saying this is a very old tale. And so basically he's actually disavowing the meaning of this oral folk tale that had been handed down through generations of women, actually, these folk tales, oral tradition. And he's a man writing it down. And he's refusing to give the real meaning of the story and the moral. Most of the retellings by men have been about how troublesome women are. <laughs> like all throughout the 19th century, all the pantomimes and plays and farces, they're all about like terrible women scolds. And so the female versions are usually more about men who are dangerous in some way. Like a bluebeard is also like a philanderer. You see all these 30s movies and stuff where the woman finds out the man's been seeing another woman. She says, you, you bluebeard, you know, she'll call <laughs> It's kind of like a man who collects women, either as lovers or to kill them or hurt them, you know. So for me, that's what it's about. It's about a man who collects women to be violent to. And also who wants to live off their money. Well, in the original bluebeard story, he's the one with the money. She actually marries him kind of for his money. She's like a pet. It's like a peasant. Like he can get all these women to marry him because he's very wealthy and he has a castle. Even though he, there are these rumors that he's got all these 
wives and no one knows what happened to them. You know, these mothers keep pushing their daughters at him because they want the connection and the money. I just want to interject that I recently reread Rumpelstiltskin. It's really crazy because this woman is trapped in the in a room of this man's castle. And it's like the final night of the three nights when she's supposed to spin the straw into gold. He says, all right, like if you spin the straw into gold tonight, then I'll marry you tomorrow and you'll be the queen. But if you don't, I'll kill you. And she does. And then they get married and have a kid. So it's kind of like, huh, okay. And it was her mother who sent her there, of course, because she wanted the money. Anyways, I just wanted to throw that in there. But I feel like the modern connotation of a bluebeard is a man who marries a woman to get her money. And this is happening in your story. Like the, the gigolos that prey on sex tourists. You know, like the gigolos that prey on older women, like that kind of thing. Sure. Or um, even like a modern day tale of it seems to be that miniseries Bad Vegan, which I enjoyed on, on Netflix. You know, this woman who was became emotionally entrapped with a man and then he just bled her dry of all her money. Yeah, I, I saw another TV show like that. Real true story. Yeah, these men, I swear to God. <laughs> Anyway, it's a horror tale and it's a cautionary tale and it's kind of the anti-Cinderella. Although, you know, what people don't realize, like Cinderella, I think is it's kind of about the handsome prince, but it's also kind of like about family abuse by mothers and sisters. Like one thing, for, well, reason fairy tales are so interesting is because there is so much like darkness and sad drama that children can learn about their own lives through these stories. One of the things that happens in your book is right that Judith sort of feels like she's being saved at first. Like she she feels like she is being rescued from a family that does not value her. Like it's a little bit like a Cinderella tale, right? And that Gavin represents some kind of some kind of rescue rather than what he ultimately is. He's the only person that's ever made her feel seen and cherished and valued and brought out a spark of life in her so that she's not just living in books, she's living in the in the world with her own, having her own experience of romance. And I mean, that's how abusers often succeed. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, because I even say this in the book, you know, because most men are too nice to, I mean, non-abusers won't do that because they're just being too honest. But, you know, unfortunately, honesty is not that, not always that, glamorous or attractive or exciting that a woman who really wants something extra it's the person who can lie that can give that to her I wonder for you I did think the book has an emotional core there's a sense of playfulness and fun and pastiche but it's also gripping and I began to really kind of empathize with with Judith how do you find that balance as someone who loves to work in genre and kind of have things almost kitsch, outlandish, fun, but then also have a kind of gravity to your story. I think that's how the original works that I'm inspired by work. You have something, it's within a structure of pleasure, visual pleasure, narrative pleasure. And then there's a moral tale embedded within it, or like a serious or a personal tale embedded within it. I just think that's just the kind of work that I like. What I really enjoy, I think, is psychological realism. And so this book has psychological realism. 
And, you know, who's to say that someone couldn't like go be whisked to an actual castle and have those, all those physical things happen. It's like something out of a fairy tale, but um, it is realistic. Like it could happen. It might happen. But it's also because, you know, the physical world is mirroring her fantasy life, which is what I do in my films as well. Like, so like in The Love Witch, we have that pink tea room, which is so over the top. But on the other hand, I'm trying to visualize her internal fantasy on the screen so that everybody can see it, so they can know why she's so in love with herself as a feminine woman. So the entire scene explodes with, with that femininity. So we can see that that's her, her interior world is like spilling out into the exterior. And so I think that's what this book is like as well. There's all of this pleasure. The pleasure is the fantasy side. And then the pain is the real side is the side she's trying to keep out. You know, and I think of books like The House of Mirth by Edith, Edith Wharton, which is such a sad, sad novel. But I think in all of those books, like from a long time ago, there was so much visual pleasure embedded in them just because the world that these people lived in was so exquisite in terms of the objects and the things that they wore and the, the parlors and the salons and, you know, the language and everything. What are the rules in writing? Like, why can't, why can't I have a character living in this world where people act like they're in from a hundred years ago? Like, why not? So I just kind of, I do like to do what I like, you know, that's the thing. I try not to like worry about like, oh, this isn't done. Like this is realism and it has to be like this. But I think it is realism in a way. It's realism. I'd never read any, like you asked me about romances. I never read any romances when I was growing up, any contemporary. I never read any of them until I was writing this book. After I wrote it, then I read a couple of contemporary romances. And that's not at all what I'm doing. They have no relationship to my book. It's much more related to this classic literature that I was reading. I want to hear your thoughts about contemporary aesthetics, because I feel like you channel a lot of what you want to talk about, exactly as you just said, by sort of mixing different things, but also really bringing forward aesthetics and beauty and forms of dress and interaction from kind of a variety of different sources, but all in the past, or almost all in the past. And I'm just so curious to hear about your relationship with contemporary aesthetics. Like, what do you think about, what do you think about contemporary aesthetics? My sense is you don't like them that much. <laughs> and perhaps there's just not that much to like, but what about aesthetics from the past really speaks to you and allows you to channel and talk about the things you want to talk about? You know, we live in a world in which everything's available to us from every era. So I don't think of it as being past. Like if I look at a movie that was made in the 1930s and I look at a movie that was made last year, they're both be available to me in the present. So it's all present time. All time is present time. And so if that's what I'm watching, that's what I'm emulating. So if you say contemporary aesthetics, that encompasses a lot of things. Like I love contemporary high fashion things like the Met Gala and like these Vogue fantasy spreads. And I love contemporary, I like some contemporary novels, but usually not as much as I like the older novels because there's something about the language. Like even in like modernist old novels, you know, like Virginia Woolf or something, there's a formalism and a kind of a, I think what's happening now with aesthetics is that everybody's too self-conscious about everything that they're doing so that I'm always aware, I'm not always, but I'm often aware of this fear. Like when I watch films or I read books, I'm aware of the author, the filmmaker having a fear 
of like not being cool or of not having something being good taste. And so I'm interested in like not worrying about that and seeing what happens because a lot of people laugh at my work and think it's not in good taste. And I think that's what people are afraid of. That's what people are afraid of having happen. I just like really determined to not be afraid of that because like if I'm emulating, let's say like Visconti or Pasolini or Michael Powell or Edith Wharton or the Brontes, nobody's laughing at that work. Nobody's like thinks that's camp or stupid or kitsch, but I do it. They call it camp and kitsch. Now, if I'm failing to do it properly and they're laughing at me, then fine. I mean, they're, they're free to do that. And maybe my attempts to be serious are ludicrous. I don't, I don't know, but it's just what I like. I just do what I like. I think that's great. And also, I mean, even the Brontes are kitsch at times. Somebody on Twitter said they thought Pasolini's Sala was kitsch. And then I th- I'm in a camp. Said I thought, well, if that can be camp, anything can be camp. Camp is just a reading of something. So when I think of somebody calling my book camp and having a camp reading of that, they're free to have to do whatever kind of reading they want. But this is a book about domestic abuse. And I don't think that's campy. So and from my point of view, it's not camp. But people want to laugh at, they think I'm a bad writer, if they think like, like I'm stupid or like it's failed seriousness and that's why it's camp. People, you know, obviously people are going to do think whatever they think, but a camp reading, I don't think is appropriate. You know, kitsch, use the word kitsch. Yes, okay, I admit kitsch, I admit to that. <laughs> but yeah, like, okay, so people think Visconti is kitsch. I don't think Visconti's kitsch. I'm, I'm watching, just watching Ludwig again the other day and Death of Venice. People think those are high camp. I don't find Visconti camp. I think his work is just deadly serious and beautiful. And so that's how I look at that work. So I don't look at the classic films as camp. I don't think my own work is camp either, but everything has context, right? So you just, what I said, there's so much fear nowadays of like everything you do, people think it's like ironic and a joke. Well, I'm so past irony. Like the world is, there's so much more depth to the world than a camp reading of everything, than just doing a camp reading of everything. Like I'm not that clever or sophisticated. I'm, maybe people want to give me credit for being more clever than I am. Maybe they're horrified by my sincerity. I don't know, but I'm doing a fairy tale. Well, maybe we should end there on the horror of sincerity. We've been speaking with Anna Biller. Her debut novel is called Bluebeard's Castle. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARP Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.